Let's turn to Exodus chapter 14, the story of the crossing over of the Red Sea. There's some military victories that are more significant than others in terms of the the impact that they have on uh, people thinking of themselves. You could argue that the Battle of Bannockburn is one uh, such victory. Uh, Any victory where a more powerful aggressor is overcome uh, by the the smaller people uh, has the effect of galvanising the people together. And no biblical victory is more important than that which God wrought at the Exodus. And it's used repeatedly as a model of God's salvation. What God does here in the Exodus and the liberating of his people uh, is used as a, a paradigm or a model of his salvation. If we want to understand salvation, what's going on in redemption, what it is to be liberated from sin, then we have to grapple with the Exodus. The Gospels pick up the similarity of the Exodus event from the very infancy of Jesus. Uh, when the little family uh, are able to return to Israel from Egypt because Herod has died, uh, Matthew sees this as a fulfillment of the prophet Hosea 12.1, Out of Egypt I called my son. And most significantly, Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration, when he is in conversation with Moses and Elijah, we're told that the topic of the conversation was the exodus that he would bring about in Jerusalem. Jesus is the new and greater Moses, and he is about to lead the people out in a new exodus. And if we're to understand the mechanics of the cross the resurrection, we have to understand the mechanics of the exodus. What is going on here? How is God accomplishing uh, this liberation? Well, the narrative, as it were, jolts forward at this point. Things have been going pretty quietly. There was the the drama of the, the night of the Passover. And then we have this very important but uh, more slow-moving pieces concerning the liturgy and how it would be that the Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, consecration of the firstborn would be celebrated perpetually in Israel. Uh, But now uh, an end has come to the Israelites' connection with Egypt and their (laughs) servitude there. And the Exodus will draw a line under this period of Israel's history and it will move us forward to Israel actually being constituted a nation because the the terminus, in a sense, of the journey is actually that which Moses had said to Pharaoh. They are going out into the wilderness to worship God. And when they come to Mount Sinai and assemble before Mount Sinai as the great kahal or assembly of God's people There, they will be constituted a nation. God will declare that he is their God and that they are his people and will give them covenant law to regulate their lives as redeemed people. People bought by blood. And so it's so significant uh, that uh, we are now moving towards this next major event at Mount Sinai. 
So on the one hand, there is so much for us to think on the Exodus event, and we could break it down, and we could uh, take it in small bite sizes, but that would be to completely uh, disrupt the impact of the, the drama itself, and so we're going to look at it in one sweep uh, tonight, and I hope that as we do, we, we feel something of the, <clears throat> the forward momentum of the story, and that we'll be impacted uh, emotionally as well as intellectually, that we'll feel something of the wonder of what God has done here. There are really three big themes which emerge from the narrative. There's the glory of God. Uh, twice we're told that God will gain glory and that they will know that I am the Lord. Uh, that's a big theme for us. And there's a theme of judgment because in this event, the Egyptians are judged. And of course, and most obviously, there's salvation because the waters are opening up to liberate the people of God. First then, uh, the glory of God. God's great purpose in all that he does is to gain glory for his name. That is God's great end in all his works. Now, if any human had that end or purpose in their living, it would be a clear sign of megalomania, of being totally and unredeemably egocentric, taken up with yourself. But not so with God, for God is perfect in all his ways. He is the, the standard of goodness. We only understand what truth is by beholding him. And therefore, not only is it right, but it is necessary that God should uh, reveal his glory, that his, his essential character should shine forth, that it should be known about. And so in all that he does, uh, he has his glory, the revealing of his glory in mind. Uh, this God who is bringing out a people from Egypt is the great God. There is none like him. Uh, nothing is too difficult for him. He is almighty. And he is a covenant-keeping God. He will always keep his promise. He is a God of grace. He will work salvation. And he will do so in the most perfect way because he is all wise. He knows how to bring together for the greatest benefit and to his greatest glory uh, all events. And so it is here, the events at the Red Sea will bring God glory in a way that no other combination of events could. Verse 4, I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh. And all his army and the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. And so the Lord tells Moses that he's to instruct the Israelites to turn back and camp between Migdol and the sea. Now, Migdol means tower. So presumably this was an Egyptian fortress. And <clears throat> from a military point of view, uh, this is a suicidal strategy. Uh, Israel is going, as it were, into a trap. Uh, she has the desert on one side and the sea on the other, and of course the Egyptian army uh, soon uh, coming in hot pursuit. They have their backs to the sea, and as the Egyptians advance, it looks as though they have the alternative of dying uh, by drowning in the waters of the Red Sea or by the spear of the Egyptian military. 
But God has a strategy. He knows that uh, this will spur the uh, Pharaoh into action. Pharaoh will think that the Israelites are wandering around, confused in the desert, uh, as only a, a mentally confused people would. Why on earth would they be going down there? Uh, obviously, the way to go was the, the, the quick route up north along the way of the sea. They've gone south instead. They're hemmed in between desert and sea. Uh, they must be sun-crazed. He'll see his chance for victory and pounce. But once Pharaoh and his army attack, his army will be destroyed. It will be obvious to all generations that only the Lord could bring about this mighty victory. And so by placing his people in what seemed to be an impossible situation, in what seemed to be a trap, the Lord will show that he alone is Lord and that victory belongs to him. This is the plan of the Lord, and Moses is given insight into it. Meanwhile, back in the palace, Pharaoh and the officials are having a reality check. They've just realized that they have said cheerio to their free labor force. Who is going to continue building these great storehouses? What have we done? Say to themselves, there's no time to lose. The Israelites are confused quite clearly, they're vulnerable. They can be caught. They can be brought back. And so Pharaoh mobilizes the the great might of the Egyptian military machine, the greatest power of the day. Uh, We're told that uh, he has 600 of the best chariots, the challenger tanks of his day, and then other uh, older models. And the finest of the army are led out by Pharaoh in hot pursuit of the Israelites. So it seems, again superficially, it seems that Pharaoh uh, is taking the initiative. Uh, Pharaoh is shaping events, it would seem. But there is another reality, and and that's disclosed to us in verse 8, that the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. God is acting like a master chess player, leading on Pharaoh until his final checkmate. God is ordaining the outcome. Pharaoh is acting freely, but God is ordaining the outcome. Then at last the army catch up with the Israelites. And it seems that there is no escape. Not so much caught between a rock and a hard place as between a sea, a desert, and the world's top army. And remember, the Israelites don't know what is going on behind the scenes. Moses has been brought into the Lord's council, but they presumably don't know. And so all they can see is their hopes about to implode. Now, very often uh, we can see in our lives as a church or our lives as individuals uh, the same kind of dynamics happening. Uh, Hopes are high, enthusiasm strong, and then there's a reversal, and it seems that things are just not working out as we hoped, and there can be a a temptation to lapse into despair, to fall flat, and we need to remember that God is in control, and that our commitment should remain at all times to his glory, and the position of faith is that which leads to God being glorified. 
scene has been portrayed so many times in, in film and so on that uh, it's, it's easy, surely, for us to imagine uh, what is happening. Israel in her teeming thousands beside the sea and then uh, in the distance, uh, desert storm advancing, the low rumble of hooves and chariots, the, the bloodthirsty cries of the Egyptians. Uh, there's a gap and it's shrinking. The rumbling is getting louder. Uh, and then the Israelites slump into one of their, uh, which will be increasingly characteristic, poor me sessions. You know, when they, they begin to pity themselves and complain and blame others. Why didn't you leave us alone, Moses? Weren't there enough graves down in Egypt that we could die and be buried there? Did you have to take us out into the desert uh, to die? We were quite happy serving the Egyptians, better than lying as corpses out here. And it's a reaction that must have been infuriating to Moses. But we need to remember that uh, we ourselves can be prone to the same kind of response when the enemy advances on us. And I'm thinking perhaps especially when we first trust the Lord. When people come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ uh, at the beginning, uh, they experience the ferocity of Satan's attack as Satan tries to, to yank people back to where they were. Tries to convince them that what they have left is to be preferred to that into which they're going. It was so much better back then. And we hear him thundering after us. We hear his yells of accusation and his discouragement. And we think, well, maybe he's right. Maybe it would have been better remaining as a slave. And as we go on in the, the Christian life, uh, the, the truth is that when we are in situations of difficulty and our backs seem to be against the wall, things are going really badly, uh, and the heat, as it were, is turned up, it so often reveals the character of our hearts. And instead of trusting Christ, which is the the, the, the proper response and relying on him, we tend to return to our old ways of coping. Grumbling, sarcasm, binge eating, depression, <coughs> alcoholism. The Israelites don't have a leader in Moses who knows what it is to trust God and there are three commands that Moses gives to the Israelites that they might continue to glorify God in the response. And the three commands are, don't be afraid, stand firm, be still. Don't be afraid. Actually, it's not really uh, so much don't be afraid as, as more of a, a rebuke. Uh, uh, what are you doing being afraid? The NIV doesn't really capture the, the, the sense of uh, the, the literal uh, words. Uh, it's not uh, there, there, now, everything will be all right. Uh, it's what are you doing when you have no right to be afraid? Because God has already demonstrated his power in the plagues and in your guidance. They're rebuked. They're told to stand firm. When we 
have our backs to the wall when Satan's pulling us back to old ways of responding to trouble, we must remember that we are in a spiritual battle and we remember what uh, Paul tells us in Ephesians 6 about spiritual battle, that we're to put on the whole armor of God and when you have done all, to stand firm. Therefore put on the whole armor of God so that when the evil day comes, you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything, to stand. In other words, to remember that there is no need for panic because Jesus is the victor. Jesus has already defeated the enemy that seems so fierce and ferocious, all devouring. Uh, He has already conquered all the things that would cause us to be afraid or discouraged. Therefore, we must not be overwhelmed by them. We must bring to mind the precious promises of God and stand firm. Stand firm and be still in the knowledge that the Lord will fight for them. Now, this is the reality, isn't it? That in all spiritual warfare, we ourselves would be helpless. Uh, We would be easy prey for Satan, but we have one who fights on our behalf. And we must do all in the strength of the Lord. Which doesn't mean that we are passive, because it's interesting, isn't it, that the Lord chides Moses, why are you crying out to me? Uh, it's interesting because it doesn't see, appear that Moses has been crying out to the Lord, unless there's some recorded, unrecorded cry, and the commentators think that Moses is being regarded as a representative of the people who are crying out in dismay to the Lord. But instead of uh, continually crying out, they are to take action, tell the Israelites to move on. And so there comes that point where having resolved not to be dismayed or afraid, when we have reminded ourselves of the victory that Christ has won and we're standing firm in that victory and we know his peace in our hearts, we're to move on, we're to take action, we're to move forward. Indeed, not to do so would be unbelief the glory of God. Secondly, uh, a very powerful note is the judgment of the Lord in the Exodus. Uh, In verse 19, we're told that the angel of the Lord, who had been traveling in front of the Israelites uh, in the pillar of the cloud, goes to the rear of the multitude of Israel. Uh, Interesting, isn't it, the the mention of uh, the angel of the Lord now. Previously, in connection with the cloud, we're told that the Lord was in the cloud. Uh, The angel of the Lord now is said to to go to the rear in the cloud. Uh, The angel of the Lord who appeared to Moses in chapter 3, all basically are appearances in some visible form of the Lord himself. So it is none less than God who now acts as Israel's rear guard. And the pillar of cloud envelops the Egyptians in darkness whilst the Israelites are granted light so that 
the two are kept apart. The Israelites are able to move forward, but the Egyptians are kept from seeing them. Now, deep supernatural darkness. Egyptians, what does this remind you of? Where have you encountered this before? Of course, it's the ninth plague, which was the, the prelude to the, the, the final and the, the decisive plague of the slaying of the firstborn. Uh, it's almost as though God is, is warning and forewarning the Egyptians. Look at judgment. Swift and terrible is about to descend. They're cast into darkness. He's warning them that if they presume to touch Israel, the firstborn, then the entire house of Egypt will be slain this time. Moses stretches out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove back the waters of the Red Sea. The waters rise in great watery walls so that there is a highway for the people. The ground dries up and the Israelites are able to pass through the sea on dry ground. Now some skeptical scholars uh, who always want to have a naturalistic explanation for uh, these things say that, oh well, you know, the other word for the Red Sea is the Yam Suf, which is the, the Sea of Reeds and This was probably uh, an area to the north where the sea was shallow, where papyrus grows. And what really happened was, you know, the chariots went through and they got all bogged down in the the, the shallow mud. But the Israelites had been really paddling and they went through uh, with the water really barely up to their knees. You wonder why people bother, you know, to, to... Uh, come up with accounts like that which are so implausible. Uh, The Bible is describing mighty walls of water on either side. Uh, A supernatural display of power to liberate his people. This is the hand of God working judgment and salvation. Uh, You notice in the story there's even a sense of of the the passage of time. Uh, That this is not, uh, you know, a, a something which was over in a few minutes. This is, this is going on through the night. Uh, it takes until uh, the, the first watch or 6 a.m. in the morning for the Israelites to get to the other side. Remember, there are hundreds and hundreds of thousands of men and women and children passing across the Red Sea. And the Egyptians, at last, are now in pursuit. And their cries of astonishment... Uh, as the Egyptians now perceive in the, the strengthening light of the dawn this incredible phenomenon of the, the piled waters of the sea. And then chaos. The Lord looks down from heaven and the Lord throws the Egyptians into confusion. And so we have the chariots begin to slide about in the mud and they start to career into one another and soldiers fall off the chariots and in confusion bump into one another and they become alarmed. They can sense that uh, this is no natural happening but that the Lord is fighting against them. Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. And then Moses stretches out his hand again and the piled up waters begin to collapse like crumbling towers, watery towers falling in great cascades and breaking on the seabed. 
plumes of sea spray soaring high in the air and down below the cries of terror and confusion from the doomed Egyptians. What's happening is like creation in reverse. Uh, Judgment is coming in a reversal of creation. At the creation, God brings order out of chaos and separates the sea from the dry land. And God is now reversing this. He's bringing chaos upon the Egyptians and he's uh, bringing them into this molten, uh, uh, watery uh, abyss, which is their doom. God has acted in judgment on the man who had defied him. His judgment has been slow in coming. It's been preceded by many warnings. But in the end, it's terrible and inescapable. God judges those who oppose him. God is working at his glory. He's enacting his judgment. But thirdly, he is demonstrating his Salvation For the Israelites, for the people of God, there was salvation. They had gone through on dry land. The Lord had saved them from the hand of the Egyptians, and they feared the Lord. Judgment fell on Egypt. Salvation resulted for the Israelites. And think on this. That same water, which was the salvation of Israel, which parted and which uh, you could acted as watery sentinels for the Israelites as they passed through. This, the water of salvation was for Egypt the water of judgment. It came down in judgment. And you find that so often in the Bible, that water is a sign of judgment and salvation. So Noah's day, God again reverses creation, brings the world into watery chaos. And so the water comes and it is acting in in judgment on those who had shaken their fist against God. But the water that falls in judgment comes upon Noah and his family in salvation. It's the very water that rises, raises their, their ark to safety. Judgment and salvation. And Strikingly, at the beginning of Exodus, uh, when Moses is uh, hidden in the, the basket, the, we're told literally he's placed in a, in a little ark. Moses in his ark. And the water which was the means of destruction for the Hebrew babies bears their future saviour to safety. It is for him salvation and had been for others destruction. And then, of course, our Saviour comes, and Jesus speaks about his cross work as being a baptism. Now he pictures the water of baptism as being a water that symbolises judgment, as well as salvation, Mark ten thirty eight. Water is then the symbol of judgment. The cross is the reality. What's happening on the cross? The waters of judgment engulfed our Savior. Jesus is plunged into the waters of chaos and darkness and destruction on that awful day in Calvary in order that we might walk on dry land 
to salvation. Imagine, if you will, the, the awe that fell upon Israel that morning as they watched the judgment of God unfold before their eyes as they stood safe on the shore of the Red Sea. What a dreadful sight. People and horses being dragged down into the watery depths. The flood waters bringing darkness and death and separation on the Egyptian host. And friends, when we look with the eye of faith on the cross, on our Saviour's suffering on the cross, that's what we're witnessing. The Saviour is plunged into the waters of wrath. Deep waters pass over him. The serenity of his communion with the Father is thrown into turmoil and chaos. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But because the waters of judgment passed over the Lord Jesus, the sea of his judgment has opened up to let us cross through. Which is the good news. The good news tonight to declare is that the waters are still parted and you may pass over You may cross from death to life and you may do so by following the pattern of the Israelites. We're told that uh, when they, uh, they saw what had happened, they feared the Lord and they put their trust in him. And you too will be saved if fearing the Lord you put your trust in him. You put your trust in the one who has already come under the water of judgment that you might not. And there is an urgency. This is not something that we put off to another day. Uh, If you are not a Christian tonight, if you're not secure in Christ, there is a great urgency in responding to Jesus who speaks to you through the gospel tonight. Because the waters will not be parted forever. A day is coming when they will fall on all who are disobedient and refuse to believe. And then it will be too late. May the Lord bless his word to you tonight. And may all of us know the security and the peace and the hope that is found when we make Jesus our security and trust in him alone. May God bless his word to us. Amen. <clears throat> when we are thinking about the Exodus, we are thinking very much on the fact that Jesus uh, is